0: The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. During a somewhat protracted experience at the Memphis Bar, my attention was early, called to the treaties of 1832 and 1834 between the United States and the Chickasaw Nation. Under these treaties, the Chickasaws ceded the last inch of that vast and splendid domain, which they had conquered and occupied long before Columbus, sailing westward looked upon the shores of what was called a New World. There are lines of deep pathos in these treaties. From time to time, my attention was called to the early histories of the Chickasaws, and I made some notes, and still later wrote some fragmentary sketches upon the subject, more as a diversion than otherwise. In assisting with our approaching centenary celebration, I concluded, almost at the last moment, to print what I have already written as a souvenir, and as a small contribution to local history. Should time and opportunity permit, I hope to complete what I designed to call The Chickasaw Nation, a short sketch of a noble people. So wrote the local writer and presumably lawyer James Henry Malone in 1919. Bill Dries, a columnist for the Daily Memphian, also took stock of the Chickasaw legacy approaching the city of Memphis's 200th birthday in a November 19th article titled, The Chickasaw Nation's Role in the Founding of Memphis. In it, Dries quotes the archaeologist Brad Lieb, who states, quote, Memphis is really the biggest city in the Chickasaw homeland. These pieces are rightful acknowledgments that Memphis is Chickasaw land, but how and where is that presence felt? In his book, The Pig in the Skyscraper, Chicago, A History of Our Future, the sociologist Marco Diermo writes of how value and meaning is often found after the utility of a tool or a people is exhausted, and then nostalgia or empathy arise. The Chickasaw, alongside Choctaw, Cherokee, Creek, and Seminole, were cast out from the Memphis area and parts beyond as part of the Trail of Tears expulsion in the 1830s. With the forced removal of the people from their lands, the people themselves became distant from the landscape, opening space to form a social memory of who they were and how they lived. It's an ever-evolving wrestling and manipulating of the facts, of the past, to somehow make it seem complete. But as this episode and conversation will hopefully help illustrate, no place, no people, no history is ever complete. Amanda Lee Savage is an instructor and an academic advisor in the Department of History at the University of Memphis. Through her teachings, Amanda addresses Indigenous issues throughout American culture and puts forth the work required to decolonize civic and academic spaces. She's the co-founder of Native Rights, a nonprofit organization dedicated to advocating for Indigenous peoples and decolonizing the Mid-South. And her current project is called Decolonizing Memphis, which aims to create a decolonized history of the city one that centers indigenous and immigrant narratives and generates new types of native authored sources for academics and activists to incorporate in their work. Amanda Lee, thank you for joining me.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. I wanna start by acknowledging that we are on the historic homeland of the Chickasaw nation of which they inhabited. Um, Memphis and all of Tennessee was the long established territory for many indigenous peoples prior to their forced removal and their unforeseen extinction. We have a responsibility to acknowledge the peoples and the histories of these lands. Our ability to live here is the result of direct coercion, forced dispossession, and deliberate colonization. To ignore that is to perpetuate injustice to populations of people that no longer exist in this state, yet have established major societies elsewhere in this country. And so the city of Memphis respects the diverse communities it touches, including those who occupied this territory originally, those brought to it by force, and those who settled here in search of better circumstances. We understand that territorial acknowledgement is only a gesture, but it represents the beginning of our commitment to justice and reconciliation in the United States. I wanted to open with that because um, this is the territorial acknowledgement that our organization co-wrote with the Chickasaw Nation. And one of the things I think it's incredibly important to emphasize that often historians forget to emphasize because so often we deal exclusively with the past um, is that the Chickasaw Nation is still present. They are still thriving um, in their current location um, and that they want to be part of this ongoing relationship between their historic homeland and Memphis, you know, which is situated at a crossroads on the bluff and how we continue to engage with them in the future.
0: So we're going to get to trying to understand what the contemporary experience of the Chickasaw people is, and very much an alive experience. But let's revisit what that lived-in experience was like in Memphis before Memphis. Can you paint for us a little bit of what Chickasaw life and other Native American peoples who were present in the area, what Paint, paint this landscape. What did this area look like?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the Mississippian world, um, which we think of having been from about 900 to 1700 CE, had, we're guessing, you know, it's es- hard to estimate, about 5 million people present. Um, there were possibly 60 million people in North America at that time. Um, and so about 5 million of them, we think, resided in this region. And the Chickasaw and the Choctaw have this story about how they arrived here, that they migrated from the west, and that they had this sacred rod that they would plant in the ground every time they stopped, and, and the rod would tell them whether they needed to continue west or whether they had found their homeland. Um, and actually, the Chickasaw and Choctaw were one people prior to this, according to this story. Um, and when they arrived at the Mississippi River, you know, the, the rod wobbled before it decided it was in place, and the people who decided to stay. You know, pre wobble um, became the Choctaw people and the people who decided to continue east across the river and into this part of Tennessee and Alabama, Mississippi, and became the Chickasaw people.
0: So, this split that occurs in uh, these kind of foundational stories um, of how the Choctaw and the Chickasaw were formed, how did that inform some of the landscape practices that we see manifest in the area?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, most of the Mississippian cultures in this area were mound builders, which is the most I would say dominant feature of these societies. It's the feature that still exists. It's a feature that when people come to this region, they they seek out. If you're going to go check out a Native American site in, in this region, you are going to go look at mounds. Um, and so we know that the earth was incredibly important to to these cultures. I mean, to the Chickasaw in particular, they built mounds for a variety of reasons, whether that was to put their, the homes of their leaders on, or if it was to build a temple, if they had religious significance, often they would bury people in those mounds. Um, But I think the most important consideration here is to, is that the Chickasaw and the Choctaw and, and the other Mississippian societies were agricultural. And one of the reasons I think that's important to emphasize is because we often have ideas as people who live in the United States that Native Americans were primarily hunters and gatherers and wandered around and did not have permanent societies. And that's just a um, a falsehood that that continues to be perpetuated through media and through stereotypes. Um, The societies that were in this region were incredibly complex. They had um, been farming corn and corn is a crop that requires human intervention. And so they have been farming corn for thousands of years. Um, and you can find these massive communal gardens where people grew corn, but they also grew squash and they grew melons and pumpkins and beans and peas. If anybody is familiar with the concept of the three sisters, um, this is where that practice comes from, where the, the corn is planted and it, grows very tall and the beans are planted and they replace the nitrogen in the soil and they crawl up, right? The corn. And then um, the melons are planted around it and the melon leaves provide shade for all of the the beans growing. And so you have this really sophisticated agricultural system that not only keeps the soil fresh, um, but also allows native Americans to sort of grow staple crops that gave them complete, you know, proteins so that they were able to settle. They developed, as a result, complex societies with chiefdoms. And they engaged in a tremendous amount of trade up and down the Mississippi.
0: I'm curious what that trade consisted of.
1: So often it would consist of metals that people might not be able to find in this particular region. And and we know that the Mississippian societies did not engage in sort of smelting and, and creating metal compounds that would have allowed them to have better farm tools or would have allowed them to have better um, weapons. But they did trade for metals that they wanted. They traded for stone that would create better tools and better weapons for themselves that might be more effective at tilling and plowing. Um, And they also traded for things that had value, things that they couldn't get in their region. And so we see shells, um, you know, pottery, things that contributed to musical instruments, um, virtually Anything, anything that would bring prestige, anything that wasn't from here w- had some value to people.
0: And these settlements that you mentioned, obviously, these markets arise and uh, the, the peoples are feeding these markets with the crops that they grow, the articles that they find and then trade. Uh, but what about the this, this size and the scale of these settlements?
1: Mm-hmm. Um. So these are difficult questions to answer. I am not going to be evasive on purpose, but I am not sure how to answer it without sounding that way. Um, We do know that some of the larger settlements, Cahokia, for example, you know, had possibly fifteen thousand to twenty thousand people, Um, and then a number of the settlements um, that archaeologists have uncovered and that we hear about, if we listen to Chickasaw stories or Choctaw stories, um, would have been fairly large, not on that scale, not. Fifteen to 20,000 people, but maybe 1,000 to 5,000 people, but you also had chiefs who would consolidate chiefdoms. And so you might be a chief of maybe a 1,000 people, but it would not be unusual for you to also have sort of extended your influence and hegemony over surrounding um, chiefdoms. And perhaps there would be minor chiefs that owed their allegiance to you, and, and you would be the paramount chief. And so it really just depends. And because we're relying so heavily on archaeological evidence, often archaeological evidence can't tell us exactly how those systems worked. We just have to make our best guesses based on, you know, what evidence we might find with one chiefdom that we find in other places, whether that looks like currency, um, if we see other similarities in the religion and the art that is left behind in these remnants.
0: So moving beyond the uh, th- this early period that you mentioned 900 to approximately 16 1700 uh, when contact is with Europeans is becoming more predominant in the area can you describe for us some of those those international dynamics that are playing out between the european nations that are looking at uh, presence, the Spanish, the French, uh, after a little bit after that, the English, uh, and then uh, how that changes dynamics both between the Chickasaws and the Europeans, as well as the Chick- Cho- Chickasaws and the Choctaws and other tribes that um, that were present in the region.
1: So the first Europeans at the Chickasaw encounter are the Spanish, um, and that is fairly well documented, um, not only by the Spanish, but um, with a lot of the indigenous people and and the stories that they continue to tell about those encounters. Um, And the Chickasaw were early repellers of the Spanish. I mean, they were able to fight off Spanish forces and prevent them from proceeding through their section of the Mississippian territory. Um, And so that encounter was initially favorable for the Chickasaw. Um, And I wanna be clear too that that contact isn't the same thing as colonialism And so um, when we talk about what you know many historians and archaeologists call the Mississippi Shatter Zone, which is a really useful conceptual framework for people who want to think about this field, right? Where there were multiple tribes and many chiefdoms, um, but, but they just couldn't survive the impact of contact and colonialism, um, one of the things we're talking about specifically, though, is colonialism, that contact itself, that indigenous peoples changing how they engage with their world and changing how they practice their farming or how they practiced you know agriculture or warfare in response to new technologies and new peoples isn't the issue um, because I one of the things that I encounter as somebody who teaches this stuff is that you often then have students who the conclusion they, that they arrive at is that well Native Americans brought this on themselves because they wanted to engage with Europeans in some capacity and and that's not true people's, when they come together and have contact, they change. and And that's natural. Um, so So that initial encounter with with the Spanish went one way. Um, and quickly after that, the Chickasaw really ally themselves with the British, and this is in part because of the British presence in the Carolinas. Um, the British would like to continue engaging in what in the Indian slave trade. So we know a lot about the transatlantic slave trade and how it influenced the development of English colonies in North America, and then what becomes the United States. Um, But one of the things that we learn less about is the Indian slave trade. And so the Chickasaw would raid on the Choctaw and take Choctaw people to be enslaved um, and then deliver them to the English in exchange for firearms. Um, And this practice continued for quite some time um, until a number of other wars in that region, but also until the Choctaws started exchanging with the French and got their own firearms, and and that put an end to it fairly quickly. Um, We do see, though, that the Chickasaw tend to continue to ally themselves with Great Britain in the majority of major wars um, in North America. They do so in the Seven Years' War, and when the um, American Revolution happens, the U.S. Revolution, they ally themselves again with Great Britain, but of course they end up on the wrong side of that particular war because Great Britain lost. Um, and this, of course, costs them quite a bit in terms of their land holdings and their relationship with the United States afterward. I mean, not only does the United States force them to concede a significant portion of their territory, they're also required for a while to lease it out to immigrants who want to move west. And so they they end up on this, um, you know, as, as enemies of the, the nation state that prevailed in that war, you know, they end up on the wrong side of that.
0: And is that the immediately preceding condition leading up to the Trail of Tears expulsion in the 1830s?
1: So that is a good question. Andrew Jackson is the person that we sort of um, assign, right, Indian removal to. He is the person who oversaw the Indian Removal Act and the person who enacted um, the Trail of Tears, even though it started, I guess, or under his um, successor. But Andrew Jackson is not the only person t- and not the only president to have advocated for Indian removal, right? Um, George Washington does think that Native Americans will be, you know, assimilated into the United States and that they will be able to put aside sort of their
0: Indianness
1: and become U.S. citizens. Thomas Jefferson is a little less convinced. Um, you know, he, he is one of the first people to say that maybe we should remove them and put them past the Mississippi and into the West. Andrew Jackson really hates the British. And I think that one of the reasons that he, in particular, wanted to do away with many of those tribes was that he thought of it as a national security issue. He saw Native American tribes as cracks in the American veneer, where the British still had influence, where those relationships with the British meant that perhaps at any moment, the British could come back and infiltrate the U.S., um... And so I believe that that's part of the reason that that he targeted those particular tribes. Um, the rest of the reason has has to do with other political, you know, geopolitical issues. Um, people thought they found gold in Georgia; they did not. They decided they wanted to remove the Cherokee. You know, the Cherokee, the Creek, the Seminoles, the, Ch- the Chickasaw, the Choctaw make up those five civilized tribes, which is a terrible, awful term that we we ought to retire. Um, but you know, they were they were the tribes with agriculture. And they were the tribes that were possibly going to pick and choose to assimilate. And and many of them did. Many members of those five tribes did selectively assimilate in order to sort of stave off U.S. invasion. Um, But I think the most pressing thing is that that was prime cotton country, right? And more than anything at that time, the United States, as they expanded slavery, as they expanded um, or as the role of cotton expanded in the economy, uh, the United States wanted to to expand into that territory, and we see with the you know with the invention of the cotton gin, um, the United States becomes more reliant on slave labor as opposed to less reliant.
0: It's a fascinating notion to go back to something you said just a moment ago about Andrew Jackson's fear of the British, and it, Seeing this removal as a way to seal off the Western boundary of the nation, is there evidence of tension within conversations of his administration, or even prior to that, after the War of 1812 concluded, where uh, there's an impulse for expansion? Now we've got all this other territory versus, oh no, this is too porous of a border. Is this a strategy that we can implement to? uh, to use your phrase, seal off the nation?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, So to my knowledge, there isn't a lot of that. Um, Unfortunately, that's why I was a little hesitant to put it forth, to be honest. Um, A lot of that came out of, and I'm sure somebody else has written about this. There are many historians of Andrew Jackson, um, but a lot of that came out of of a really remarkable book um, that I was able to read that looked at a lot of his personal papers. Um, And, and, Many people are confused about Andrew Jackson and his relationship to Native Americans because he, you know, served in the War of 1812 with Indigenous people under his command. And he um, adopted uh, an Indigenous child um, and brought him back to the hermitage. And so... uh, Many people ask a lot of questions. You know, Andrew Jackson couldn't have hated Native American people, even though he signed the Indian Removal Act because of all of these other things. Um, and so the question I asked myself when I started delving into that, what was about his relationship to the British? And he, he very much saw Native Americans and says in his own works that, that they are possible cracks, you know, for the British to inf- infiltrate. The other people who were, anybody who was against expansion, otherwise, again, at least to what I've been able to read in the primary sources, um, very few people mentioned that in particular. But it is also possible that I haven't read enough. This is the fun part about being a historian. You arrive at a conclusion, and then you often find more evidence that takes you in a different place.
0: I wonder if you can share with us some of the pressures that the Chickasaws Felt and, and other native peoples felt as these wars were being executed, uh, in their ability to carry on cultural practices or or their lack of ability to carry on cultural practices because of those pressures.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the things that I think is important to mention about the Chickasaw people is that they're a matrilineal society, um, which means that status and property right descends through the mother's line and is then conferred to the children through her. Her brothers um, would have been the paramount male figure in her children's life, not their father. And this, of course, runs in direct opposition to how the United States operates, um, or how um, practices brought over, you know, with the English into the United States. We're a very patrilineal and patriarchal society. Um, Status and property is passed through the father's line. And so one of the Things that was difficult for the Chickasaw to continue to practice was that matrilinealism. Um, And they certainly did to an extent. If we look at the Chickasaw Nation now, you will hear women from that nation speaking about how their mothers and aunts and the elder women in their tribes have always been on the council or that they have always been, you know, the home, the homemakers in the sense that they took care of all the children. They retained as many cultural practices as possible, and that they passed those on, right? So Native American women are often the cultural gatekeepers in that regard. Um, but it was incredibly difficult for them to practice much of that. Um, Europeans also believed that men should do farming, not women. And that is absolutely antithetical to how many Native American groups practice, including um, the Chickasaw Nation and, and many of the Mississippian cultures. Women were farmers and men did the hunting. The United States wanted to cut down on hunting grounds because it takes a lot of land to hunt, right? Whereas um, agriculture is a more intensive use of land, but it is also a way to maximize the bounty of a smaller plot of land. So shifting that gendered labor was really detrimental to, to sort of maintaining the cultural practices in a lot of these societies. Um. And it's one of the reasons we believe that the Chickasaw embraced slavery compared to others. You know, all five of the nations in this region that were relocated um, engaged in the institution of slavery in some capacity. The Chickasaw, though, based on the numbers that we have access to, engaged in it more than others. And, And many people believe that this is because... Chickasaw men maybe did not want to engage in farming themselves because it was so antithetical to their gendered understandings and their spiritual understandings of of what it meant to work the land. But they could oversee other people working the land, which made slavery sort of this gateway, you know, to practicing U.S. agriculture the way the United States wanted them to. Um, another thing that I, I want to mention is that it's only been in the towards the end of the 19th century um that people of Native American descent have been allowed to freely p- practice their own religion. And so there are many ceremonies and and cultural things that were outlawed by the US. If the United States wasn't, you know, scooping up children and sending them to residential schools and punishing them for speaking their language and cutting their hair off and divorcing them for their culture directly, it was also illegal for them to engage in any of these things even in their own homes. And so, um, you know, like 1978, I think, is when that law passed. And so it's it's hard to document what we may have lost, um, you know, if we don't have a, a written record of it. It's also not always for us to know. So one of the interesting things about doing work with Native American people is that not all information and not all knowledge is um, up for grabs for any academic. And so there's a lot of protocol to doing this work, um, to speaking with people, to asking permission to share stories. Um, The things I'm sharing tonight even um, are also on the Chickasaw Nation's website. Um, And much like the land acknowledgement that I co-wrote with the Chickasaw Nation, um, I have tried to limit what I share to information that is either common knowledge by those tribes, or things that they are promoting themselves.
0: Time, what is time? I only know that I haven't got any. You still have plenty. Where did it, where did it go? I can remember going catfishing, my pockets were empty, I didn't have a damn, didn't have a penny, but Lord, I had, Lord, I had time. How is it that we come to know something as memory as part of the historical record? How is it that these memories become ingrained into the physical landscape and made manifest? And what do these memories broadcast to the users of the physical space? In his 1974 book, The Production of Space, the French philosopher Henri Lefebvre wrote, nothing disappears completely. In space, what came earlier continues to underpin what follows. Pre-existing space underpins not only durable spatial arrangements, but also representational spaces, and their attendant imagery and mythic narratives. What holds the center in the gaze? How is the physical construction of the memory of the native presence and formed the contemporary lived-in experience of this land, of this city, the native peoples and Memphians of all backgrounds who still live within its presence. So, Amanda Lee, I'm, I want to talk about, as you alluded to at the onset of the conversation, the contemporary experience of the Chickasaws. Uh, but I also want to take a critical look at the markers within the city of Memphis that we associate with the Chickasaw presence. So, the kind of ramshackle historical markers that you see marking the Trail of Tears, um, you know, scattered uh, along Danny Thomas, or I think there's also one uh, along A.W. Willis when you go over the bridge to uh, Mud Island. Um, And how does that inform our conception of the present?
1: Um, there's actually, I think, a new marker, too, on Mud Island um, that they unveiled in 2019. Um, I think it was November of 2019, the Trail of Tears Society. And I um, am grateful that we have markers because I live in a city where having Indigenous presence at all is, is difficult to see and difficult to manifest. Um, the downside, though, is that things like having only trail of tear markers means that we continue to keep indigenous peoples and the Chickasaw in particular. um, And I'm I'm referencing the Chickasaw so much because of the treaty that was signed, right? And so we do think of this as being, Memphis as being Chickasaw homeland. Um, But of course, you know, we know that the Choctaw were also here, the Quapaw were also here. Um, A number of indigenous peoples came through this area, not even came through this area, but called this area home at the same time. But it keeps them very firmly rooted in the past. And and that continues to render them invisible in our modern day-to-day landscape. Um, It also continues to reinforce a very damage-centered narrative about Native American peoples in the United States. And one that doesn't problematize or contextualize the, the actual Trail of Tears. The Trail of Tears just becomes this thing that was sort of inevitable. As opposed to a choice that many people made um, and a decision many people made to to relocate, to forcibly relocate humans to make way for what they wanted. Um, and in particular, what what I've always found interesting is often the trail of tear markers around this area might make mention of the Chickasaw and the Choctaw, but they're almost entirely Cherokee focused, at least the ones that I've been able to see. Um, and I just I just find that interesting because it, it sort of still continues a, a rather dominant narrative that the Cherokee were like the main movers and shakers of this area. Um, and, and it reduces, you know, everyone else to kind of this footnote in the story. Um, even though we know that the Choctaw and the Chickasaw have, you know, major settlements in what the state that we now call Oklahoma. Um, And so I I just think that it continues to marginalize them. It continues to reduce them and it continues to erase them from our conversations.
0: And raising visibility is a lot of the work that you are engaged in with Native rights, right? Tell us a bit about what Native rights is and some of the initiatives that you're undertaking to help raise the visibility of the communities.
1: No, absolutely. Um, Thank you for asking. So Native rights is um, we are now a registered nonprofit, which, when you are doing decolonizing work, gives you a little bit of pause because you are then joining sort of the colonial capital structure while you are also trying to do this labor. Um, but it's an organization I co-founded with um, my friend and colleague, Zianya cruise. Um, and Zianya used to be one of my students at the University of Memphis, actually. Um, she came through my history program quite some time ago. And during November, if you are an Indigenous person or if you work on Indigenous history, you get a lot of calls to come help people with their cultural competence. And we're so happy to serve those calls. Um, I myself am not a Native American. I'm a Native Hawaiian, actually. And so I am Kanaka Maoli and I am I'm Hapa Hale, so I am part white. Um, which I try to make very clear before those conversations um, so that people do not think I'm pretending to be Native American. But we would run into each other at these events all the time. And almost every time we would run into another Indigenous person who is here and who is sort of feeling um, a little bit of lack of of community in that regard. Um, And I don't just mean like we don't have other Native people to sit around with and hang out with. Um, We also don't often have a lot of people who share our worldviews or our thoughts about, you know, the relationship between who we are as people and our communities or who we are as people and the earth around us, um, our cosmos. Um, And those things are pretty significant to Indigenous populations, um, being able to share that worldview. And so we would find people and then we would just keep in touch through email and try to get together every now and then. And so we thought maybe it would be a good idea to, to approach this a bit more systematically. Um, and so we got together one morning. Um, it was the 4th of July, which was ironic, um, and decided to form this organization. And part of the things we're trying to do, so Native rights stands for reclaiming our indigenous truths, education, and sovereignty. Um, and one of the things we're trying to do is change that narrative about what it means to be Native in Memphis. Um, many of us, I will be honest, nobody in our group is Chickasaw. Um, there, we have yet to find members who live here who would like to participate, but we do maintain a relationship with the Chickasaw Nation as much as we can. Um, we have been very fortunate. Their cultural, um, historian is, is always willing to chat with us and to help us out with projects. We do have a number of, mem- of members who are Choctaw, though. So the mission of Native rights <laughs> is to practice decoloniza- decolonization in the mid-South. And I want to emphasize practice there, too, because um, it's a process, and, and we're all learning what that means. And so we do a lot of education. We do education around um, why Thanksgiving is a harmful holiday for a number of Indigenous people. We do education around the Indigenous history of Memphis and why we think Indigenous sovereignty and Black liberation go hand in hand. We do a lot of um, outreach to K-12 schools. Um, to help them decolonize their curriculum, and so that means moving their curriculum away from a really Eurocentric Western perspective, bringing in more information about the peoples who lived here first, and supporting teachers while they figure out how to tell a story that can still be native oriented without being again damage centered. Um, because I think that matters. One of the problems I, I see in the school system, and part of this is because I have a son in the school system. Um, is that they're my son's only brush with Native American people outside of this household, um, is once a year at Thanksgiving or to learn that bad things happen to them and they're no longer here. And again, that's just not true. And when we continue to sort of perpetuate this idea that sad, bad things happen to Indigenous people and they're no longer here, we further erase them. In fact, in a way, we commit like historical and, and modern genocide all over again in these conversations. And I, think that this is a way that we have the power to stop that. you know we can prevent disappear the disappearing of indigenous people from our conversations
0: the work that you're doing directly with the Chickasaw Nation, you mentioned that the the present day site is the state of Oklahoma where the nation is is headquartered um, headquartered not quite being the right word situated uh, and we, we could probably have another podcast chat about the uh, fascinating Supreme Court decision that was issued uh, last year about the sovereignty of the Chickasaw Nation. But the question is what what other ways is the nation looking at the region? Um, I, I know that there's, and maybe you can elaborate on the Chickasaw and Kana Foundation and the work that they're doing. Are there other relationships that the nation is looking to build within the region to reclaim some of that rightful memory in the in the landscape um, or other initiatives that they're working on directly
1: i cannot answer that question authoritatively at the moment in part because covid really um halted a significant amount of the work that we were doing together um and that has been hard to reclaim. The Chickasaw Nation has done a remarkable job getting its own people vaccinated. But, um, as we saw with the Navajo Nation, um, COVID really decimated and and hit some of these other indigenous populations very hard. And so we have been very careful about, about proceeding in that regard. And we haven't resumed any opportunities to visit, um, and to talk. Prior to COVID though, um, you know, we were working with them to have our county commissioners and then our city council approve the land acknowledgement and to start using it um, here in the city of Memphis. And again, land acknowledgements are are such a small, bringing us up to ground zero first step. Um, but the more popular they become and the more we use them, the more people are introduced to the idea that maybe this land hasn't always been theirs. Um, and people are introduced to the concept of, you know, Indian removal, but that the Chickasaw still lives somewhere. And it's important for us to acknowledge that. I know that my university and that Rhodes um, are both looking to strengthen that relationship. They are both hoping to establish markers somewhere on their um, campuses to discuss that Chickasaw presence. Um, I am so fortunate. I work with a man named um, Brad Dixon. So Dr. Dixon is a historian and Former he guest, does the in history. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. And he does an incredible job with this. Um if anybody has a chance to take a class with him, I want to take a class with him. Um he is so good, but he is really strengthening our relationship with um the Chuckalisa site. And I think that that um will help. There are a number of people though who <clears throat> Also believe that that chunks of this land should just be given back to the Chickasaw Nation, and that is not a stance that the Chickasaw Nation has taken in any of our exchanges. Um, but if you're unfamiliar with it, the land back movement is really gaining some steam, and and this is where that court case um, was actually of particular interest to many of us uh, because stewardship of land is not necessarily the same thing as ownership of land. And so, if you are going to check out the land back movement, I would I would encourage anybody who's interested to do that, but to think about what stewardship means um, to indigenous peoples, as opposed to outright ownership. These are very different things. Um,
0: Let's unpack that a little bit because in, in Canada, as I understand it, that the land back movement is gaining some serious traction and that looks like Mm -hmm. uh, a way in which first peoples in that nation do have the potential to reclaim ownership, um, which carries with it stewardship. But to your point, those are two very distinct things. What is the likelihood of that actually achieving or attaining officialdom status here in the United States?
1: I think on this side of the Mississippi, it will be highly unlikely. Um, and I don't want to be discouraging and I will support those movements myself, um, as an activist, as long as I can, um, but I think on this side of the Mississippi, we struggle to even, at least in the Southeast, I know that it can be a little bit different in the Northeast, um, we struggle to even acknowledge that Indigenous peoples lived here. And so I think that land back is is going to be a harder sell in this region where half the time we're reminding people that Native people exist in the first place. Um, but I think in other places, I I can see, especially with what happened in Oklahoma, I can see the Navajo Nation is very large, right? It's I think it's bigger than West Virginia. Um, and I think that if we, as again, people who are interested in this or people who are interested in the decolonization, and I keep saying we as if you are right on board with me, so I apologize. I mean, like the royal we. Um, I think that if people start thinking critically about our our country and our geopolitical situation. I think that if more people saw maps where Native American land was clearly marked because it is not part of a state, right? It is, it is its own entity. Um, I think there are many things we can do to, to highlight and make these ideas more of a reality, but I, I think that they will be small shifts. I no, the United States does not have indigenous peoples in the same, the same levels of indigenous population. And I think that that's part of it, um, you know, that that Canada still has very large, very um, cohesive indigenous communities, and they're very organized in many ways um, and have been able to gain more traction with this. Whereas in the United States, because of uh, many things, you know, geno- I mean, actually First Nations people also experienced genocidal policies. Um, but because of the types of genocidal policies we have here and then the types of um, erasure that we practice through our national storytelling, um, we have made it very, that hurdle really high. Um, And so I think it'll be difficult to overcome.
0: When you look at the city of Memphis at this present moment, and its relationship to its past, and particularly its relationship to acknowledging the presence of the Chickasaw here, what arises for you?
1: I am hopeful in many ways. Um, I think that our work with Native rights has been met with so many opportunities and so many openings. Um, and I could not have imagined when we started this that that was going to be the case. Um, and some of it was, was luck. We happened to start Native rights at the same time, right before the Brooks got their Native Voices exhibit. And just partnering with the Brooks and then partnering with other institutions, um, allowed us to get outreach into the, you know, K-12 school community. And so these things all compounded one another. Um, and, and we have more people asking us for support in this direction than we have ever had before. Um, and so I'm, I'm really encouraged by that. Um, I will also say that I think Memphis needs to recognize the relationship between Indigenous removal and slavery. You know, Memphis is home to the Cotton Museum, for example, um, and, and while it does acknowledge slavery and it's tr- trying to do a better job, I think, as it reconceives itself and, and will open again. Um, it doesn't really do a good job explaining that relationship between the removal of people to open up that land to grow more cotton um, and just the violence that the Cotton Exchange brought to this, com- to this situation. Um, and in particular, one of the things that I think many of us are guilty of overlooking, and, and I am guilty of this myself, is um because Memphis does have such a prominent place in African American history, um, not just because of the relationship between slavery and cotton here, but because of Martin Luther King and because of the sanitation strikes, um, and, and because of the the Memphis riots, even. Memphis has a very strong um sense of place in African-American history, we have often overlooked the role of African-American, Native American people. Um, And Memphis is home to a significant population of people that, that are probably identified by other people as Black and probably also identify themselves and identify with Black culture, but that are also Choctaw and are also Chickasaw. Um, And one of the things that has come out of many of my conversations over the last year, that I've, and I've been really grateful for this experience, is hearing from people in our community who do identify or are identified by others as members of one community when they do feel as though they belong to another. And so um, I think that if Memphis can really think about not just who it is, but sort of maybe who it forces other people to be, and allows a multiplicity of, of Memphis identities to come forth, um, that we might be able to move our city into a, a more inclusive, more multicultural direction. Amanda
0: Lee Savage, thank you for being on Drowned in History.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Every day
0: Drowned in History is hosted by me, Ben Shulman. Thank you to Amanda Lee Savage for sharing her knowledge with us this episode. And as always, Gilworth and the OAM Network team. Drowned in History is a just place podcast, a production of the OAM Network. Follow us on Instagram at drowned underscore in underscore history. Let us know what you want to know. Give us a good review wherever you get your pod feeds. More soon will come soon. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast.